Welcome to episode 154 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. If you want to burn fat, gain energy, and enhance your health by changing when you eat, not what you eat, with no calorie counting, then this show is for you. I'm Melanie Avalon, author of What, When, Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine. And I'm here with my co-host, Jen Stevens, author of Delay, Don't Deny, Living an Intermittent Fasting Lifestyle. For more on us, check out ifpodcast.com, melanieavalon.com, and jenstevens.com. Please remember, the thoughts and opinions on this podcast do not constitute medical advice or treatment. So, pour yourself a cup of black coffee, a mug of tea, or even a glass of wine, (laughs) if it's that time, and get ready for the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. One more thing before we jump in. Did you know that common ingredients found in skincare and makeup products can actually disrupt your endocrine system? These endocrine disruptors are a silent threat that can have significant impact on your health, including something that is very important to me, fertility. Your skin is your body's largest organ and what you put on it matters. Endocrine disruptors are chemicals that interfere with the natural hormonal communication in the body. It also matters during pregnancy. And that's one of the reasons I pay close attention to what I put on my skin while being pregnant. Studies have shown that exposure to endocrine disruptors can affect both male and female fertility. For women, these disruptors can lead to irregular menstrual cycles, ovulation issues, and even polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS. In men, they can reduce sperm quality and quantity, making it even more challenging to conceive. But it's not just about fertility. When it comes to fat loss, one of the reasons that endocrine disruptors can get in the way of fat loss is because a lot of our toxins are actually stored in our fat. It's a way that our bodies protect us from those toxins. These toxic compounds can even work synergistically, amplifying their harmful effects and making it that much harder to shed unwanted body fat. All of these reasons are why I am obsessed with a company called Beauty Counter. The founder actually started the company when she learned about the potential dangers of toxic chemicals and their link to health issues, specifically miscarriages and infertility. While pregnant, I make sure to only use Beauty Counter products. It's one of the only makeup lines that is officially recommended from the Environmental Working Group. What really sets Beauty Counter apart is their unwavering commitment to protecting us, the consumers, from the hidden dangers that lurk in conventional beauty products. Beauty Counter goes above and beyond, rigorously screening every single ingredient that goes into their products, ensuring that they are safe, clean, and free from harmful toxins. They're not just a beauty brand, they're a movement for change, advocating for stronger regulations in the beauty industry. With Beauty Counter, I know that I can trust that the skincare and makeup that I use are not only effective, but also safe for me and my family. They have skincare lines for every skin type, as well as so many other incredible products. I absolutely love their overnight resurfacing peel. It's my favorite way to get anti-aging benefits in a skincare product. The makeup is absolutely amazing. I have tried alternative beauty products in the past and none of them truly performed. But with Beauty Counter, the foundation is so amazing. It makes me feel like my skin can breathe and it looks so dewy and beautiful. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. 
New customers can use the code CLEANFORALL20 for 20% off their first order. Beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. All right, friends, now back to the show. Hi, everybody, and welcome. This is episode number 154 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. I'm Melanie Avalon, and I'm here with Jen Stevens. Hi, everybody. How are you today, Jen? Well, I am just in heaven because it is finally warm enough for me to wear shorts. And for the past two days, I've been able to go sit outside in my backyard and soak up the rays, get some vitamin D. Yes. (laughs) And, you know, actually, this is what I wanted to talk about. You know, coronavirus, of course, is all in the news. It's been declared a pandemic. And I've been doing some reading on viruses and vitamin D levels and how a lot of times we're more susceptible to viruses when we have a low level of vitamin D in our blood. So getting some natural vitamin D is not only does it feel great, but I'm considering it to be uh, boosting my immune system. Yeah, 100%. I mean, they'd often said that people actually are more likely to catch colds during the fall and winter because they're indoors more. So you're actually around other people, but I feel like the vitamin D could probably be just as much of a factor there. Well, I actually have been doing some reading, like some, some journal articles. I mean, they're, they're definitely, I mean, in PubMed, if you search for vitamin D and viruses, you find articles about it from reputable sources. So it's not just an internet rumor. (laughs) It's, it's actually, you know, there's some science there and a lot of the, like the Spanish flu epidemic that was, what was that? 1918 or whenever that was, it happened to be like a really, there were several factors that were going on at the time, but one of them was there was also like a volcano that had erupted and people got, were getting less vitamin D because the, the earth was like in this cloud. Anyway, it's very interesting to consider that, you know, there, there are other factors besides just here's a virus, you know, who's going to get it, that things like vitamin D levels can make a huge difference. So, so this is fascinating. I was just looking. So I have iTunes pulled up. I'm in the health category. So they only show daily the top 20 shows out of all health shows. I was checking to see if we were there because we got an email saying that we were ranking pretty well. So out of the top 20, here are some of them. Coronavirus Daily Briefing. I'm guessing that is a new podcast. Epidemic with Dr. Celine Grounder and Ronald Klein. Coronavirus Global Update. The Daily Podcast Form Coronavirus Central. Coronavirus 411. I think that's it. So five out of all the health podcasts, five out of the top 20 are probably new podcasts because I doubt there was a coronavirus podcast. No. Before this, that's um, fascinating to me. Wow. So what's been the vibe in your home? Are you guys concerned? Are you, what, what are your thoughts? Well, you know, from what we have heard and read, you know, it's highly contagious, but yes, it's more deadly than the flu. You know, the percentage of people that get it, it's, it's, it's higher, the death rate, but it, it's still a small death rate. Unless you're in a population that is, you know, like if you have lung issues or you're elderly or you know, pre-existing conditions. So, you know, I, th- I think we're we're just, we're not panicked about it. We're not, you know, stockpiling. We are being vigilant. And I'm more concerned with what's going to happen over time with, you know, like the industries that are affected. For example, Princess Cruise Lines just 
said they're not going to have any cruises for the next 60 days and then they'll reassess. So, you know, industries are really going to be hit hard. Right. I'm not downplaying the seriousness of it at all because, you know, it is new. We still don't know and we're, we're working to keep it from spreading, but I'm not panicked about it. We're not like living in fear, I guess is, is what I'm saying. You know, we're, we're going to do what we can to, you know, follow good hygiene and we're not going to panic. Exactly. I honestly feel like even like the biological health relationship to it, that if there's one way to make a population more susceptible to a virus, it would be to have a, you know, an ethos of fear because we know what that does to the body as far as your, you know, resilience. And I don't mean that like in like some woo-woo way, like literally. I mean, there are studies showing even people with like cancer, for example, who have, you know, hope and love and positive mindsets about their disease or about cancer are more likely to recover. I think like the mentality and the mindset is so huge. So I think it's really important to not create an atmosphere of fear surrounding it. Yeah, I think so too. But the atmosphere of fear is out there. And so I'm not going to fall into that. Although I did make sure I had enough toilet paper. I didn't stockpile, but we do have enough. (laughs) That's all I can say. (laughs) I looked at what we had. Oh man, just because of me and my lovely relationship with digestion and bowel movements. I think I probably should stock up on toilet paper. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Okay. To-do list after this. (laughs) And water. Well, I just drink tap water. I'm just going to say it. I drink tap water. I only drink, well, yeah, the glass bottled water, the still, like the mineral still water from Whole Foods. It's very affordable, by the way. If anybody wants affordable bottled glass water, the Whole Foods brand is great. Yeah. We don't have a Whole Foods. I know that's so sad. I like I said, I was going to move to Alaska, but they don't have a Whole Foods. I just realized. So, I think that people really are scared just because of the way China responded and the way the other countries have responded after seeing it. So, you know, the countries that have had a lot of it have responded in a very heavy-handed way, and that is where the fear comes from for me. Because, gosh, they have experience with it. Look what they did. Anyway, I'm getting my vitamin D because I do think from you know looking at the scientific literature, I do think that vitamin D can play a role. And so I'm getting it naturally with a little safe sun exposure, keeping my attitude positive. And I think that's the best we can do. Wash your hands, you know, don't touch your face. That is so much easier said than done. Yeah. Don't touch your face. You know, there was a press conference the other day and the person, I don't know, Surgeon Surgeon General, I don't know who it was. Somebody was giving the, the press conference about how to keep yourself safe. And they said, don't touch your face. And then one second later, touch their face. Oh, man. That's how hard it is not to touch your face. <laughs> I would need to have like baseball mitts on to not touch my face because anyway. Actually, this is something really interesting was one of the industries I think that this actually really needs attention to is restaurant workers because most restaurant workers are part-time and they don't receive paid sick leave. So it's like the workers most likely to go into their jobs when they're sick are, you know, quite possibly the restaurant servers. And they're handling all of our dishware and, you know, after we're done eating, our glasses, our napkins, that sort of thing. Yeah. So it's fascinating. You know, and then there's also to tie it into intermittent fasting. I'm sure that intermittent fasting, well, we we know, we know from the research that intermittent fasting strengthens our immune systems. So here we are, you know, in a very good place. It won't prevent you from getting sick, but, you know, we have that in our favor. Exactly. That's that's what I was going to say. 
So speaking of, shall we jump into everything for today? Yes, let's get started. All right. So to start things off, we have a really quick little brief email from Shannon. The subject is Lifesaver. She says, your suggestion for peppermint oil in those tiny spray bottles for fresh breath is a freaking life changer. Thank you. Thank you. I work very close up with patients all day and I was worried about my breath from IF. Now I don't have to. Thanks again. I love my little I use those every single day for listeners. I'll put links to those in the show notes. But if you struggle with the keto breath or the IF breath or coffee breath. Yep. (laughs) That's really what I think it is for me. It's it's black coffee breath (laughs) more than anything and the inability to chew gum because I used to pop gum all day long. You know what I'm really fascinated by? And it's something I feel like I keep, I think we got an email about it the other day as well. Do some people in the groups talk about getting the keto breath right. Oh, I think we have talked, we talked about this on the show before, like after eating. Oh, having the ketones. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Because your body is, is expelling them because your body no longer needs them because you started eating. Yep. That's when your body wastes them. It happens to me. I get the breath and I didn't understand it. Years ago, I had one of those ketonics breathalyzers early on. I was an early adopter of that. It was 2014. I was trying to do keto. I mean, I was doing keto. I wasn't trying to do keto. I was trying to lose weight on keto and wasn't, but I was 100% following the rules. And I had a ketonics breathalyzer and you know, it worked. You could breathe into it. it. It measured ketones in my breath. And then when I stopped keto and went to intermittent fasting and added carbs back in, I would get that taste in my mouth after eating, but I didn't understand it. I mean, this was a long time ago. So I remember one night, you know, I was I was using like about a five-hour eating window at that time. It was fall of 2014. And I can remember that I had cheeseburger and fries for dinner. And then about an hour after eating, I had that taste in my mouth of ketones. And I'm like, this is so weird. So I breathed into the meter and it registered them. And I was like, I'm back in ketosis already. <laughs> I didn't know what, what you know, but I, I think I shared that in some Facebook group I was in. I was like, oh my God, I'm back in ketosis. No, I was not back in ketosis. I was expelling ketones that my body had made during the fast. And I just didn't understand that. It's really fascinating. It's only happened to me when I started experimenting with a lot of MCT. I would find that if I did like low carb with a lot of MCT oil in the meal, like halfway through the meal, I mean, it would just be like pure ketones from my breath. And I was just like, wow, this is shocking. And it was clearly, for in that case, it was from the MCT that I just ingested. And you had, basically, it sounds like your body made more than you needed. And it was like, we got too many. Let's get rid of some. Yeah. Because that's really what it is. When your body is excreting ketones through your breath, it's the ones you're not using and that you don't need. Yeah. And it happened to me the other day. That's why I was thinking about it more because I'd been eating lower carb meals with MCT. And then I had a meal that I didn't add the MCT to. And I had that effect. And I was like, wow. So is that just like carry spillover from, I don't know. It was just, it was really interesting. So in any case, a lot can go on with that breath. Yep, absolutely. And I use wow drops. I've talked about it before. I have no affiliation with them. I just love them. And I have a link to them on the um, favorite things tab at jenstevens.com. But they're just, they're peppermint oil and chlorophyll. And they're, I consider them to be in the gray area. 
you know, I know people that they do break their fast. They bother, you know, they'll they'll use wow drops or, or even regular peppermint essential oil and they can tell that it makes them feel shaky and hungry and doesn't work well for them, but they work well for me. So I keep those wow drops with me if I'm going to have to get close to people and wow, they work. I love them. On the bottle, doesn't it tell you to like put it on your hand first? And lick it off? Yeah, I don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> Especially not right now. <laughs> not putting it on my hand and licking it off. No. All right. Shall we go on to the next one? Yes. This is from Maria. And the subject is wishbone podcast, juve, and stressing my thyroid. I mainly wanted to tell Melanie about a podcast I came across called Wishboning, which reviews all of the PBS Wishbone episodes. It has 72 episodes and ended in September 2018. So for everybody, I don't even remember what episode that was that we talked about this. Do you remember, Melanie? Probably a lot of episodes, but... I don't know. I think we did only talked about it once or twice, but Melanie shared her love of Wishbone. I was teaching when Wishbone came out, and you were a kid, so that tells you something right there. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, Melanie loves Wishbone. I remember using it with students. It's so great. I could fangirl about it. Yeah, I was probably at my desk grading papers, so I don't think I ever watched it. Because when we put on a video, we were doing something else. Let me just tell you. Oh, it's so great. I even had the computer game version for the Odyssey. Oh, it was great. Well, anyway, Maria wants you to listen to Wishboning with 72 episodes. If you need something else to listen to, Melanie, you would enjoy that. So she continues saying, Also, I just ordered the Juve Mini yesterday. I ordered it mainly to help our 15-year-old daughter with her depression and was going to just buy the go, but they were out of stock. I was unable to find info as to whether red or near-infrared light was better for depression, so I also didn't know which go to choose. I sent my husband links to the Juve episode of your podcast and Juve's website. He is a nuclear-slash-electrical engineer and assured him that he and I would also benefit from the Juve in many ways, and he approved the larger one. Woohoo! I'll just jump in really quick there. So for depression, so for the mood benefits, both are most likely beneficial. There have been studies on near-infrared and its effects on depression. If I had to choose between the two, I would actually choose the red because personally for me, I find it incredible for regulating my circadian rhythm because the red light is light naturally found in like the rising and setting sun. And so it's great for also counteracting a lot of the blue light that we're exposed to. Oh, Jen, I have a funny story really quickly. The other night I had a a plumbing issue at like midnight, which cannot happen. And I only have one bathroom. So, I mean, I was still awake at midnight. It's not like I woke up, but it was a problem. So the after hours, like maintenance guy had to come and got here at like 1 a.m. And I totally forgot that like, it's not normal to have your whole apartment being like glowing red and... <laughs> be wearing like red like glasses. So he didn't say anything, but he came and he and he fixed it and everything. And then he was like about to leave and he and he seemed really nervous all of a sudden. He was like, Do you mind if I ask you something? And I was like, Oh gosh. I was like, what I was like, what what did I do? Like <laughs> Are you a witch? I know. <laughs> and he was he goes, What's with all the red light? <laughs> I was like I was like, Oh. <laughs> you should have told him you were a photographer and it was your dark room. Oh, that would have been a good idea. Then I was like, oh yeah, I guess it's not normal to like have your whole <laughs> room like glowing. That's why I do not have my juve here in my podcast studio, FYI. Although everyone does know that I'm a podcaster in the neighborhood and Oh really? They well, yeah. So they probably know I have a juve, so that's so funny. So yeah. 
So then I took it because I have my red light glasses on because I don't even really know what it looks like. So I took a picture with my phone. And so in the morning I could look and see like, what does my apartment look like? Good times. Yeah. The point was turning on that red light. I just find insanely beneficial for mood. Okay. And we'll put a link in the show notes. We do have a coupon code for them, but back to her email. Okay. She says, your podcast is so helpful. I just told someone about it again this morning at my jazzercise class. She and her husband both have type two diabetes and just began IFing by doing one 14 hour fast per week. That made me realize how far I've come in 13 months. I've been trying to be consistent with 24 to break through a plateau, but 19.5 is so much more comfortable. I did my first 40-hour fast last week on Mardi Gras of all days, Fat Tuesday, and it was easier than I had expected. I could have gone longer, but it is so much fun to eat, and I thought that was enough for my first one. 19.5 might work if I reduced my carbs and omitted dessert. I'm also afraid of stressing out my thyroid. I take a compounded natural thyroid prescription, so don't want to shorten my window too much or do too many extended fasts. I have had the test for thyroid antibodies on three different occasions and none were present, so I supposedly do not have Hashimoto's. However, my pediatrician diagnosed me with Hashimoto's back in 1980 when I was 12 years old. I'm not sure how much they knew back then. How would I know if I'm overdoing it for my thyroid? Would I be able to feel it? P.S. Melanie, I was hoping that you were going to tell us your new dentist's latest thoughts on TMJ. I wore a night guard for that during college. It doesn't give me trouble now, except the right side of my jaw always pops slash cracks when they check it at my cleanings. No pain, thankfully. Thank you both again for the podcast and everything else you do to keep us informed. Maria. Awesome. So what are your thoughts on her fasting patterns? Well, I mean, I don't think there's a ton of difference between 19.5 and 24, like as far as like whether that one extra hour of fasting is going to make or break what's happening for you. But I guess it, it matters if the one extra hour of eating gets you into trouble. You know, if you're like, well, my window's still open, so now I'm going to eat something I wouldn't have normally eaten. You know what else I would wonder? And this kind of actually goes back to kind of our conversation at the beginning about context. Because like, I think that's my initial exact same response. Like there's not that much different. Honestly, it would probably, and like you said, it might depend more on like the eating, but then you might think if that's applied to like an entire year, is there a difference? I don't know. Like, I don't know. Well, there's just so many variables. Like for example, a short window, you might think, okay, a short window, longer, fast, 24 on paper, of course, it's going to be quote better because you have one shorter hour to eat, one more hour of the fast. But what if, because you have one shorter hour, it makes you binge because you're worried because it's shorter, in which case now you're eating more in a four-hour window than you would eat in a five-hour window. So that's why we can't make a universal, you know, a four-hour window is better than a five-hour window, because it might be, but it might be worse. Exactly. And, but like what I'm also wondering, and we don't know the answer to this, and it's almost not even worth you know, thinking because it's all a what if situation anyway, it does make me wonder if you had like a, you know, a controlled experiment where a person ate the exact same amount of calories in a 24 compared to a 19.5, like if that could be controlled over a year, like, would there be a difference? That would be an interesting experiment. That would be a fascinating experiment. Cause Jen, I don't think there's been any experience, you know, where, where it's like, where it's checking just like a tiny, small little hour difference. I'd be fascinated to know if there would be a difference there. It would be really hard to, to gauge. And you'd want them to be eating like the exact same thing. 
like. That's the thing because it, people lie. You know, if I had to follow, you know, exactly what they told me to eat, you might would eat something and then not tell them and then lie. And now you've just ruined everything. That's the problem with people. One of the problems with studies in general is that the most valid studies to look at for these type of things are the metabolic ward studies where it's so controlled. But the, the problem with that is that nobody's living like that in real life. So it's like those are good for gathering the data, but then like the real life application of it, it's like you kind of have to take the knowledge you learned from it and go with that. There's so many factors. That's why we have so many studies on rats and mice, because it's really easy to control what you're doing with them. People, not so much. And actually, even so, it's still not that easy to control with rats because they can do behavior you weren't expecting. Like, let's say you're controlling how much food they eat and you're putting them on a calorie-restricted diet. And so now they're they're a little nervous and panicked that they start running on their little wheels more. So there's a variable. Yeah. That's what I was saying, like, on another episode, that it doesn't account for – that's, like, one of the biggest things is it doesn't account for the rats not knowing they're on a diet. (laughs) So, like – they have actual more physical activity, probably. You know, we don't know why. So anyway, it's there's a lot of variables. So again, you know, you'll just have to have to see, Maria. I don't know that twenty four versus nineteen five would make a huge difference. Instead, what would make more of a difference is listening to your satiety cues and stop eating when you've had enough. For me, I always got into more trouble when I thought about, hey, my window is still open for another thirty minutes. What else can I have? That, you know, is eating food you don't need. But it's not because my window was five hours. It was because I was not eating to satiety. Anyway, it's complicated. All right, so what do you have to say about her thyroid? I'm fascinated by the fact that the pediatrician diagnosed you in 1980, but now you have negative tests for that. I would just say go on the test now. (laughs) Like, don't be haunted by the diagnosis from when you were 12. As far as the thyroid, first of all, I would totally recommend checking out the episode that we have with LRS. About the thyroid. And I also had her on my other show, the Melanie Avalon biohacking podcast. So both of those episodes are very, very valuable information for any listeners who have any questions or are struggling with thyroid issues. They're incredible. As far as how to know if you're overdoing it for my thyroid, would you be able to feel it? So the one good thing about the thyroid, as far as like other health type conditions, is that it is very testable. You know, like you can take a, you can do blood work. The problem is most doctors are only testing TSH and T4, which is not going to tell you anything. I mean, I'll tell you TSH and T4, but it's not going to give you enough context to know what's actually happening at all. That's why I recommend listening to those episodes with LRS. But the good thing is if you do get a comprehensive test of your thyroid that tests TSH, T4, free T3, reverse T3, then you can get a pretty good picture of actually what's happening with your thyroid. So you could test your thyroid throughout your experience with your diet and everything, and you can see how it's reacting. Signs that you might be overdoing it, for example, is like reverse T3, if that goes really high. And there's a lot more detail to this. So I'm, again, I'm going to refer you to LRS. But things like reverse T3, the body creates that to block thyroid hormones. So that can happen, for example, when your body senses that it's in an overly stressed state and it's trying to slow you down. So your reverse T3 might shoot up through the roof. That could be a sign. Or it could downregulate just your thyroid hormone in general. Again, it's complicated because even lower thyroid hormones are correlated to longevity. So that's a whole other odd factor to take in. T4 
TSH is what most people use to gauge what the thyroid is doing, but it's actually not a thyroid hormone. It's from the pituitary, and it's basically the call signal from the pituitary to talk to the thyroid and tell the thyroid how to change. If your TSH goes like really high, that could be a sign that your body is saying, you know, we need more thyroid. So I'm feeling a little hypothyroid. I don't want this to like all be a thyroid, you know, it's so complicated. But as far as her answer of would I be able to feel it, it's hard to know like what you're feeling is from what. So that's why I just encourage you to do blood tests with this. Jen. Yeah. You know, with thyroid, you got into it in detail. And so you know, you just really need to to study and dig in and and think about, you know, what are you feeling? You know, like I had a nodule on my thyroid and did a lot of reading about the thyroid years ago. This is probably, I don't know, 2007. I can't remember. It was, it was a long time ago, over 10 years ago. But I looked at what the symptoms would be. What would I feel, you know? And so I, I did just a lot of reading and that's what I would recommend that you do. And then think about what do you feel? Like I, my body temperature was low. That was a symptom that I had. You read the older work, Dr. Broda Barnes, I think is his name. I can't remember. The, he had a book about the thyroid. It was way before they had, you know, the testing. But, you know, I had the myxedema, which is where your upper arms are like, you know, puffy kind of thing. And you can't pinch the skin. So he had all these different, you know, look at this, look at that. These are signs. So... Do some reading and just see. Yeah. I mean, the main, if you want to be like, quote, stereotypical, one of the biggest things for hypothyroid is like you go cold, like you being cold. And then a lot of weight gain, inability to to lose weight because thyroid is controlling your metabolism. So if your metabolism is not not going, then it's going to be really, really hard to lose weight. Oh, I just want to say really briefly, I have to check out that Wishbone podcast. That's like, (laughs) oh my gosh, that's really exciting. I'm going to go watch the episodes now. The TMJ thing. Yeah, I posted about that on my Instagram and so many people commented. So I saw an oral surgeon TMJ guy. He actually made a a specific night guard for my TMJ that most night guards, they have the, the support in the back of your mouth where you're grinding, but this actually puts all the support in the front of your mouth so that your back teeth literally can't touch at night. Oh my goodness, it's amazing. <laughs> so if anybody has TMJ issues, that's definitely something to look into. But yeah, I have been saying that my dentist, act, the other dentist I saw was actually saying that physical therapy was probably the best for that. And I've been getting a lot of feedback from listeners and people in the groups and stuff saying that they had seen a lot of benefit from physical therapy. I think that just in general for health issues, I think there's so much to approaches like that, like addressing the root cause in a way. So we have another question, and this is another disease question, actually. We did not plan this, but it's all on topic. So this question comes from Diane. The subject is IF and Lyme disease, and Diane says, Congratulations on your 150th podcast. This particular podcast really sparked my interest because it had addressed a lot of the issues that I've had questions about. I downloaded it and listened to it while I was cleaning horse stalls. Did you ever ride horses, Jen? My family raised horses, so I have done my share of stall picking, yes. They didn't start raising horses until I went off to college, so I missed out on being there day in, day out. My middle, there are four four kids in the family. I'm the oldest, and I also was not raised in the same house as them because I have a different mother. My parents are divorced, but 
my sister and my brother that are just, are younger than me, not my very youngest brother, but the two of them showed horses. They traveled all over the country showing paint horses. So whenever I was there for Christmas and summers, they're like, hey, welcome. You're going to pick the stalls. We all did it. It wasn't like, you know, make me do it. <laughs> it was everybody. It was just the, the routine. But yeah. So did you ride or? I did ride, but it was casually. I mean, I was too old to, I mean, I wasn't, you know, showing or doing anything like that. My brother and my sister were. I completely forgot about this until I read this email. I think that's so funny how you can forget entire things from your life, you know, like, or like, it makes you wonder like what experiences you had or what things you did that you're never going to remember ever again. That is interesting, but I guess you won't remember that you didn't remember it. Yeah. I did horseback riding lessons. Yeah, I never took a lesson, I don't think, but I just, you know, I also grew up in the mountains of Virginia and like everybody had a horse. So, I mean, we didn't have a horse in Virginia. My parents, like I said, we they divorced, but my dad lived in South Carolina, my mom and I and my stepfather were in Virginia, but in the mountains of Virginia, so many neighbors had horses and we would just, you know, go riding together just through the woods. I mean, it was like you would just saddle up a horse and go for a ride. And again, when I was at my dad's, we would do that too. We would just saddle up the horse and go for a ride through the fields, through the swamps. It was, you know. That's really fun. Till we got bored. <laughs> we would go back home. <laughs> yeah, my best friend growing up, she was like a big horseback rider. Like the, you know, the like the competitions and stuff. Yeah, that's what I missed out on. I didn't do any of that. Like the jumping and. Yeah. And I was thinking about it even more. I was like, because I think we've talked about this. Like I don't really, I don't have any pets and I don't, I don't want any pets. But I think I would like a horse because. You don't keep it in your house, you know, it's like separate, but then you can go see it and it can understand you. And I feel like you can just bond with it. I don't know. I feel like it could be very healing. Yes. Yeah. I don't understand the whole having a horse and keeping it somewhere else because, you know, my, my parents had a barn and it was full of horses. Well, by somewhere else, I mean, not inside of your apartment. Yeah. Since you have an apartment, you would have to have it like at a facility. Yeah. But I think a lot of people do that though. They don't have room for their horse because they don't live on a farm or land. So they, they have it in a barn somewhere and they have to go see it. Yeah, no, I, I, yeah, I know they do. Cause I remember when I was doing lessons, there was like a brief moment where my parents were contemplating getting a horse, but then it was like, we had to figure out where to keep it. Right. Then it gets expensive. Yeah. Cause I remember my, my best friend, Mary Alice, I think she, I don't know if she actually had a horse or if she just no, I don't think she had a horse, even though she was like, I think she just like worked with the same, you know, barn and same horses. Well, it gives you a great work ethic, cleaning horse stalls. You know, I've, I've certainly done my share of it in the hot summer, the Southern summer. And I'm down here with my, my little rake and you're <laughs> cleaning up the horse poop. So I would not do well with that. You know what though? It's really a very pleasant environment. That sounds gross for anyone who, but it, you know, the sweet smell of the hay, it's not as gross as you think. If there's no grass, I'd be fine. I mean, you're in the barn, you're picking the stalls, you're cleaning it, you're putting it in the wagon. I mean, it's just, you know, it's just a natural process. It's certainly not as gross as changing a baby's diaper, okay? Let me just say, it's less gross than that. I'm just getting flashbacks. It's really appropriate for this, since we're talking about all of the the stuff. Have you seen Melancholia? Melancholy? Is it Melancholy or Melancholia? Was it a movie from a long time ago that was kind of weird? yeah. It's one of those movies where like, you know how sometimes you see a movie and- And you're like, what did I just watch? That, but then like there'll be a scene that is just so, just like imprints on your mind and you're like haunted by that scene. Yeah. I saw that movie a long time ago, but I don't remember much about it. 
now would not be the time to watch it. It did not imprint. No. Okay. I won't. It's the one where the, they think that it looks like that there's a planet or a star or something. What would it be? What would be hitting them? A meteor? There's something that's coming. Or like an asteroid. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. The, it might hit the Earth, and they're not sure if it's going to or not. Okay. Yeah, I remember now. There's a scene in the horse stalls. Anyways... Back to her question. She says, I have a total love-hate relationship with you guys. Let me explain. I now have the tools to lose the weight I need, and I no longer have any excuses. I am 57 years old. I went through menopause very early at 47 due to my thyroid condition. This is all just going together thematically. She said, I have had it for 37 years controlled with meds, an issue that was discussed in that podcast. I also got Lyme disease four years ago. I couldn't function, blah, 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 all the Lyme stuff. It was just nasty. I did a search as per your request on the website about Lyme and IF. I really couldn't find anything. Maybe I didn't do the correct search. However, I have been med free from the Lyme for about eight months. Yay. Total of over three years on heavy antibiotics. I've been doing IF for about a year or so and I've lost 13 pounds. I'm 5'6 and now at 131. It's really hard to take the Lyme meds when doing IF. I just didn't know if anyone had touched upon the subject of IF and Lyme. My nurse practitioner, who is a Lyme literate practitioner, was very supportive of me doing IF during Lyme treatment, as she does it as well. I do take probiotics, selenium, zinc, and oregano for the Lyme, and I'm feeling great. I do get really hungry, but find that doing something else, I have a farm. Oh, right. This is the horse girl. I was like, what are the odds? But... It's the same person. (laughs) She says, I have a farm until my window opens. The fact that I know how to lose the weight is a great feeling. I do a 17-7 fast five days a week. My other two eating days, I get full really fast. Thank you so much for introducing me to my new eating habits. We have converted several of our friends, just explaining that it is not a diet, just new eating habits. That always works. Well, I need to finish my wine because my window opened... Sorry, this was so long. Oh, by the way, can I have lemon in my water? Ha ha ha. I hope you know I'm kidding. Love you guys. Thanks, Diane. All right. This was a great, great email from Diane. It was. And I love that she's doing 17-7 for one thing because, you know, for some reason people like skip over that one. Everybody wants to talk about 16-8 and then they go straight to 18-6, but there's a number in between, 17-7. Yeah, no, it's so funny. I, I read that and I was like, 17-7. Like, literally, I don't think I've heard that before, even though I'm sure, I'm sure a lot of people are doing that. But most people don't say 17-7. They just don't. You know, 19-5, people talk about a good bit because Burt Hearing's Fast 5 protocol was a 19-5. And a lot of us got our start with that. But, you know, people always say, 16-8, but rarely people are like, I do 17-7. So I enjoyed seeing that. I also think, Diane, you're doing kind of a loose 5-2 also because you have five days with seven-hour windows, and then you said the other two eating days you get full really fast. So you have two days that are you know, not officially down days, but you know that you're eating less food those days. So you're like doing a loose 5-2 with the 17-7 on the other days. I just thought that was interesting. Oh, hey, you're the only person who pick up on that. <laughs> I love, you're so good with all the numbers and like the days. And I, I'm just like, you know, it's, it's Facebook all day long, every day. That's what people ask. I'm always really impressed. I'm like, I could not have come up with that at all. I know this stuff. I can get you on all the other stuff, but yeah. Yeah. There's so many ways to make it work. In my new book, Fast Feast Repeat, now available for pre-order, I have a, a section in there, tweak it till it's easy and how you can take all these different, you know, some people are like, I do, you know, 18, six 
boom. Or like I do ADF, boom. But really you can pick and choose from the tools in your toolbox. And and you don't have to say, I do this or I do that. Instead, you pick and choose and turn it into something that works for you instead of, you know, having to label yourself. Oh, and by the way, I got the back cover design. They're working on that. My editor is working on the back cover design. We've been going back and forth with a few little things here and there, but I just love it. It's so much fun. I'm like, that's me on the back cover. I know. Isn't that a good moment? (laughs) It is. You know, so many books, so many best-selling, you know, in the diet industry, whatever. You know, we're in the diet category, even though intermittent fasting is not a diet. But so many books in the industry, you know, the person will be on the front cover. Like, you know, here's my book and here's my diet plan. And when we started talking about covers, I was like, I do not want to be on the front cover. Please do not make this about me. Like, I I really did not want to be on the front cover. But I I am excited to see my little photo there on the back. That's the same the way it was for my book as well. I feel like that's sort of the trend now not to have. I feel like a while ago it was more to have, like, the people on the cover. Well, you know, right now, though, a lot of the top ones are – there's, like, a keto book that's always in the top, and she's right there on the cover. I just feel like looking at all of them in general, it seems to be more – I feel like there's so many books coming out now about all these different topics, like keto or – inflammation or plants or this or that, or so that, I don't know. I feel like there's, there's so much that the percentage is less. Yeah. Well, at the time there were several that had just come out. There were the persons like right there on the cover. And I was like, I don't want that to be, I don't want this book to be, I don't want it to be about me. I want this book to be about fasting. Are you using a picture that you already had or are they taking one? It's the one that I, I have on my website that I love so very much. A photographer took it in Atlanta of me. And it's just, yeah, I like that picture. I love that picture. And and my husband looked at the cover and he's like, now you're going to have to get a different photo for other places. I'm like, well, that's fine, but this is my favorite one. So I want it to be on the book. Yeah. For mine, I actually used a picture that actually my, one of my best friends had taken in college. I mean, he's like in the film industry and everything now, but I was like, this picture means so much to me. Like, that's why I want to use it. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, this picture of me was taken by Rebecca and she is I consider her to be a friend, but we met through intermittent fasting. And she was on my podcast, Intermittent Fasting Stories. She lives in Atlanta and she's in my groups. And she just reached out to me and said, if you're ever in Atlanta, I would like to take your picture. You know, I would like to do that for you. And so I hadn't met her face to face, but you know, we got together in Atlanta and had a great time. And she took my picture and it was just, I love that photo so much. And she's a very special person. So she was one of my very first podcast guests. I love it. Yeah. She's great. So she's got a little cred right there on the back cover, her name. I haven't told her that yet, but it has her name right there next to the photo. I should probably let her know. Same with my friend Carmen. I remember I was like, here's your name. Your name's going to be on my book forever. (laughs) So going back to Diane's question about Lyme disease. So I don't know that there are specifically studies on fasting and Lyme disease. That said, I will say, so Stephen Buhner, he wrote one of the foundational books about treating Lyme disease called Healing Lyme. I actually recorded the audiobook version for it. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes. That was a, a very long project, as Jen probably remembers, because that book is very long. But he is a big proponent of fasting. Like One of his other books is actually just all about the benefits of fasting, and he does talk about that a bit in that book. And honestly, I feel like I personally feel like anything that supports 
the health of the body and the immune system and everything in general can be beneficial for chronic illnesses or chronic diseases. I know Diane was asking about, she said it was hard to take the antibiotics in the fasted state. And so obviously that would be something that's totally something you have to you'd have to make work for you. And that would be an individual case type thing. So I don't have like a fasting cures Lyme disease answer, but I think if you're finding the approach that's supporting the health of the body, that it can definitely be a very, you know, therapeutic thing. Do you have thoughts, Jen? Yeah, I don't know a lot about Lyme disease, so no. But I'm glad that she's working with a practitioner who she calls Lyme literate. I think that's important. Yeah. It's really fascinating because there's a lot of controversy surrounding it because basically the CDC, which is the the part of the government in control of like defining what is disease and such, they've made the testing criteria for Lyme disease very specific when in reality, the data behind what the tests show and how accurate they may or may not be just doesn't line up. And it's very likely that both sides of the spectrum happen. People might be diagnosed with Lyme who don't have Lyme. And then a lot of people who have chronic Lyme disease can get false negatives and be told they don't have Lyme when they really do. And I mean, it's actually really, really fascinating. Definitely check out the book, Healing Lyme, if you're interested. But basically the the bacteria, it's a spirochete and it's a shape shifter. And that's like, it literally is. So it can change its form to multiple different forms in the body. So it can evade the body's immune system to avoid being like attacked or flushed out. So people can have it for years and years and it can be really hard to get rid of. So my heart goes out to you, but. Or even to identify or even to diagnose, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the weird thing about the testing is like, I mean, if you just think about it objectively, because the way the testing works is you take a test and it looks for antibodies to different like Lyme. It's hard to explain, but there are these bands that are basically antibodies to Lyme. And for some reason, the CDC has come up with really specific criteria. And it'll say like, only if you have like this combination of bands at this percentage, does it mean that you have Lyme? When, if you look at it more like comprehensively, it's very arbitrary in a way, but like the, what they've come up with compared to what the blood test might show. And so I think it's really important to work with a Lyme literate practitioner who can help you out with that. So there's a lot of testing methods as well. There's Western blot, Elisa, Eliza. You can also do PPR testing, which actually looks for proteins in the blood. Some practitioners say that that's better. I personally don't think so because I think the antibodies would be more telling because especially if it's like not acutely in your bloodstream at that moment. But yeah, there's a lot there. But in any case, speaking of disease and the illnesses and all the things we might experience, I think If you are practicing intermittent fasting in a way that's really supportive of your body, I think it definitely has a place for sure. It's probably not going to make things worse. No. Yeah. I think it most likely would only help. Right. So Stephen Buehner, he has a lot of books, but his book on fasting is called The Transformational Power of Fasting, The Way to Spiritual, Physical, and Emotional Rejuvenation. So I will definitely put that links to that in the show notes. All right. So we have one more question from Jill. The subject is organic vinegar and water IF. Jill says, hello, I've been enjoying your podcast and I've ordered your books. I found it to be so informative and really appreciate the shared information and experiences. My husband has even started IF, saving both of us lots of time and money. I've heard you say lemon water breaks a fast. What about one tablespoon of organic vinegar? I usually have that before my coffee. I also wanted to know your thoughts about IF 18.6 with two smaller size meals Monday through Thursday and three meals Friday through Sunday, all healthy, low carb. 
I don't do one meal a day as I tend to overeat and feel uncomfortable. I also love to eat breakfast, so I save that for the weekends. I found that this maintains my current weight, but I would like to lose five pounds. What would you suggest? Thanks again, Jill. First of all, I have some bad news about vinegar. I mean, it's really a food if you think about it. It's, yeah, it's a small amount, you know, just like lemon juice would be a small amount, but apple cider vinegar is, you know, it's a natural food product. So I would recommend avoiding all food products during the fast a long time ago. Before I wrote Delay Don't Deny, this is how long ago it was. So it was probably early 2016. I was still experimenting with, you know, it was after I'd read the obesity code. And I think he talks about, you know, vinegar in there. And I did some experimenting with vinegar during the fast. It 100% because I had been, you know, fasting clean and stopped the stevia. It 100% broke my fast. I mean, not even, I mean, I totally knew it, but I was disappointed about that because, you know, apple cider vinegar in a mug of hot water was delicious and satisfying and I loved it, but it totally, I could tell it broke my fast. But in the meantime, it's food. It's a food product. Also, here's something to think about. So much of the, the benefits of apple cider vinegar occur when you take them alongside or when you have it alongside of actual food. So many things that it does. So, you know, have it to open your window, have it around your meals, use it to cook with, but don't try to work it into the fast. There's really no need to. It's not going to give you a special magical benefit during the fast that it would not give you later. And it's likely to break your fast because it's a food item. So I do not recommend apple cider vinegar during the fast at all. No. But again, like I said, since it's it's got the benefits when you have it with food, that's just when you want to have it. Did you want to say something with that, Melanie? Yeah, I was just going to say that still slowly working my way through Dr. Michael Greger's How Not to Diet book. He has a whole section on vinegar and food. And it was the first thing I think that he actually had me, he has me very convinced that having vinegar with your meals, like you said, actually might be really, really healthy and good for weight loss. It's really good for you. Yeah. Dr. Fung talks about that, about how great it is with food. I was actually really shocked by some of the studies that he referenced, which as listeners know, I'm checking every study he references. (laughs) Some of the studies they've done where they just add vinegar to meals, but they don't change the calories like the weight loss changes are are crazy. It's true. Dr. Fung talks about those too. He was saying the mechanism of action was because it requires energy to process the type of acid that's in vinegar. I don't know if it's mostly that or if it's about the blood sugar regulating benefits. Or, But in any case, I, I read that section. I was like, I think I'm going to start having apple cider vinegar on my food. But that's the key part on my food. While fasting, I actually think it's interesting because it's often used for like blood sugar levels, but I think there's the potential of it making people become hypoglycemic during fasting because it could drop your blood sugar. Well, if it does drop your blood sugar, people are like, hey, it makes your blood sugar go down. Well, what makes your blood sugar go down? Well, insulin does. So if you take apple cider vinegar and your blood sugar goes down, it could be because it stimulated an insulin response and the insulin made your blood sugar go down. I don't know if that's the mechanism of action. Well, I don't know either, but it could be. It certainly made my blood sugar go down without a doubt after I took it. And so... Yeah, that's what it seems to do pretty consistently. So I definitely wouldn't. I think, especially when you're fasting, I know we're like, oh, lower blood sugars, but but fasting will do that. Like, So adding things that lower it even more oftentimes might just make you ravenously hungry. Right. Yeah. And you know, why is it lowering your blood sugar? Like I said, is it lowering it because you released insulin? Yeah, exactly. I'll have to research that more. 
She also wanted to know about 18-6 with two smaller meals Monday through Thursday and three meals Friday through Sunday. I mean, you know, it all depends. If if what you're doing maintains your weight, but you want to lose five pounds, then you're going to need to tweak something. So it all is a matter of what your goals are. If what you're doing right now, you're enjoying and you're happy with your weight, keep doing it. But if what you're doing right now is keeping you at a, the same place, then you're going to have to tweak something. And the thing that I would tweak would be the three meals on Friday through Sunday. You know, if you just did 18 six every day, I bet that would move the needle for you. And you don't have to do it forever. You could go back to the lifestyle that works for maintenance after you lose, you know, the five pounds that you have to lose. So just think about that. You know, we do have to often tighten things up to lose the weight. Maintenance is a lot more flexible. But to actually lose the weight, you may have to do a little more than you want to do to get the weight off. And then you can relax into a different IF pattern for maintenance. Exactly. And that's one of the things I actually really love about IF for maintenance is that, and I think this is so huge and I feel like it's not talked about enough. It's almost a protective maintenance system because in any other system, you're going to go onto a, you know, calorie restriction or some sort of diet. And then it's like you return to your quote, normal maintenance diet. But if IF is not your norm, it's so easy to (laughs) gain back the weight. But IF, you'd have to do much more overcompensation to gain back the weight in an IF pattern, if that makes sense. It can be done. I mean, you could gain back weight. Yeah, I'm not saying you can't. But it's also, it's really easy to get a handle on it though. Like for me, Whenever you feel your honesty pants getting a little tight, tighten up that window a little bit, have some less wine. That's what works for me. And it's really easy to correct versus every other, you know, when I did a diet and the weight would just skyrocket on. Yeah. And I think for me, this is just my personal opinion, but I think if you're nervous about doing some sort of more restrictive approach to lose the weight and you're nervous about maintenance after, I think you can be assured knowing, and this is just my personal opinion, but there are two huge factors that you can implement that don't require any calorie restriction or any like amount of food restriction that if paired together are pretty good at maintaining because they just make it pretty difficult for the body to store excess fat. And that is combining intermittent fasting, especially a shorter window with either low carb or low fat, because those, if you're staying consistently to one of those macronutrients, and I'm not saying being restrictive, I'm just saying like a whole foods approach that is lower carb or lower fat, not both together. And that's just my opinion. Because if you think about it, if you're on, if you're doing intermittent, say you're doing a low fat diet, intermittent fasting, lower fat, it's a situation where it's much more difficult for your body to store excess weight. Same with the low carb plus intermittent fasting. I would actually argue that, and I will stop now because we're running out of time, but I would almost argue that intermittent fasting plus a low fat diet would make weight regain less likely than intermittent fasting plus a low-carb diet if we're not controlling for calories at all. And we're pairing it with intermittent fasting. So if we're taking intermittent fasting, we're not controlling for calories. So we're going to let the participants, and I'm going to have to modify it even more, and saying it's whole foods only, low-carb versus low-fat. I I personally think for most bodies, it would be more difficult for the body to create excess fat in the low-fat and the low-fat IF situation than the low-carb IF situation. Yeah. Just from the science. From the studies that I've read and I... From what I've read. Yep. And I was, you know, in in Fast Feast Repeat, I talked about how our bodies respond to different foods differently and, you know, what happens when you eat excess carbs, what they find your body does, what your body... It's just, you know, 
even Dr. Fung, who is, you know, in the keto community and the low carb, now they're saying instead of low carb, high fat, they're saying low carb, healthy fat. But he has a blog post that talks about who needs to avoid bulletproof coffee and fat bombs and all of that. Because there's a mindset that, well, fat is not bad for you, so therefore have as much fat as you want. And you cannot get fat from having a lot of fat. But he actually has a blog post that says, if you're trying to lose fat, you do not want to just keep eating fat, eating fat, eating fat, eating fat. And he's a proponent of this lifestyle. So I've shared that with a lot of people over over time because they're like, well, fat is a free food. Well, it is not a free food. It's not a bad food. I, I think that we think that food is unlimited. You know, th- there's a magical unlimited food and there isn't. Well, there's this idea, and I think it comes a lot from like good calories, bad calories, the work of Tobbs. That book was brilliant, but I think the takeaway a lot of people took from it, and I think Tobbs, I feel like he still subscribes to this, but it's this idea that if you're in this low carb state, like literally you can't store fat because of like insulin stuff. And I'm like, I'm like that's just... I don't think that's the case. And I think it varies a lot by people. Like you could have two people and maybe force feed them like 10 sticks of butter. It's very possible that one person will not store any of it. It's totally possible. It's also totally possible that the other person, the body does store it. Is insulin required to put fat in fat cells? It's not required for glucose to enter. There's non-insulin mediated glucose into muscles. Right. So, you know, I think putting fat into a fat cell is different. Once it's in the context of protein, that's the other thing. So maybe you can make a case for a diet that's just fat because the insulin release would be so minimal. But who's eating a diet that's just fat? Once you add in any amount of protein, protein does stimulate insulin. And it makes me feel queasy just to think about just fat, fat by itself. (laughs) Anyway, do not throw rocks at your radio, y'all, because, (laughs) you know, We're also very different when it comes to what foods work for us, but there really are no freebies. Like if I just eat a ton of this, I'll be able to eat as much as I want and won't gain weight. You know, that's not really how it works. I think there's a caveat there. (laughs) I think that we still have to eat to satiety. You cannot overeat anything. There's no macro that's your free overeating macro. I will make a quick plug. I have had so much fantastic feedback. I recently had Dr. Ted Neiman and William Schufelt on my podcast and their book, PE Diet. I know it's got the word diet in it. They're all about like how the key is protein and minerals. And I literally think he has just nailed it completely. And what I loved about, and the feedback I've had from that episode is insane. Like so many people have been like, wow, like literally this is the first time that I feel like this actually makes sense. Like as far as the macronutrients, like the the muddle, the muddy waters of macronutrients go. So in summary, just real quick, I know we're, we're late on time, but what does he say? So his hypothesis is that appetite, health, everything. It's not about carbs. It's not about fat. It's about protein. So like you need your adequate amount of protein to support your body and you're going to eat until you get enough protein. And then it's about minerals. You're going to eat until you get enough minerals. After you cover your protein and minerals, because that's what your body like has to have, then for fuel... It's either fat or carbs, but not together. Because when you, I mean, you can put them together, but that's like instant. That's much likely to encourage weight gain. If you're overeating, that's what I really keep coming back to. You know, the whole idea of fat and carbs together, you're not going to gain weight with fat and carbs together unless you're eating more than you need. Right. But for the average person, 
but not the average intermittent faster. See, I think that's that's the key because we're we're eating in a window, so we're less likely to overeat. I think less likely. I think some people it's easier. For some people, it's harder. But in any case, he acknowledges low carb or low fat can work for weight loss. And I kind of what I think that people who are overweight probably, and he talks more about the low carb side of things, that when you're like tackling insulin resistance and everything like that and losing that initial weight, that low carb, you know, is oftentimes a good way to go. But he does acknowledge that low fat can work as well. And that might be more beneficial for like maintenance or if you're not losing weight. I'll put a link to the show notes. It's very, very fascinating. It is always fascinating to think about how the body uses foods differently. I just encourage people if they're not seeing the weight loss results they want, I don't think intermittent fasting is a magic, like you can make tweaks. Right. Make tweaks. And and that's the part that, that people, they're like, well, Jen, you said delay, don't deny. I don't want to deny. And, and the whole point of delay, don't deny is that there are no foods that are forbidden. I'm not giving you a meal plan, but you may need to delay them until you reach your weight loss goals. Or if it doesn't work for you, you may need to you may need to deny that food because it doesn't work for you. My son is allergic to shellfish. He has to deny it for the rest of his life. So you have to work with the body you have. Okie dokie. Well, this has been absolutely wonderful. A few things for listeners before we go. If you'd like to submit your own questions for the podcast, you can directly email questions at ifpodcast.com. Or you can go to ifpodcast.com and you can submit questions there. That's where those show notes will be. They will be, I didn't even say the show notes. They'll be at ifpodcast.com slash episode 154. We are a Himalaya partnered show. And if you follow us in the Himalaya app, you can get early access to our podcast 24 hours in advance. So definitely check that out. You can also follow us on Instagram. We are ifpodcast. And you can follow us on Twitter. We are the ifpod. And on Instagram, I'm Melanie Avalon and Jen is Jen Stevens. And if you want to see that picture of my red light room... (laughs) it's there. Anything from you, Jen, before we go? No, I think that's it. Looking out the window, I don't think it's sunny enough to go get some more vitamin D now, but fingers crossed that tomorrow will be sunny. Yeah. Last thing, then we can go. My rent renewal thing came up and I was like, oh, this is the moment where I, if I were to move to Alaska, now I have to decide. (laughs) Do not move to Alaska. We would never be able to record. Our time would be so screwed up. Oh, Isn't that just Pacific time zone? I have no idea. But it was hard when you were Pacific. Yeah. Colorado, maybe then. We'll see. Okie dokie. I'll talk to you next week. All right. Talk to you then. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Please remember that everything discussed on the show is not medical advice. We're not doctors. You can also check out our other podcasts, Intermittent Fasting Stories and the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. The music was composed by Leland Cox. See you next week.